All right, number 10. Now, this 10th commandment. Again, reminding everybody, I've been saying it every week. It's worth saying again, the Ten Commandments, even though they sound a little bit constrictive, prohibitive, um, you know, we often look at them and we say, here's all the things you're not supposed to do. But let us remember they were given by God out of a heart of love for his people. Israel, coming out of Egypt, had been enslaved for generations. They did not have a sense of national identity. God gives them this thing called the law, gives them a sense of boundaries. In the middle of the law, these ten words, they're often called. The Ten Commands. The commandments themselves were designed to be governing principles, principles that would give them kind of a a way of of pursuing a, a blessed life at a national level. So, in fact, when Jesus comes on the scene, he takes these ten and they say, how, do, how would you summarize the ten commands? And Jesus says, essentially, you can think of them in, as, as being reduced to two things. He says, the first is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He says, the second is like unto it, to love your neighbor, others, people, as yourself, loving God, loving people. He says, this is the core, the centerpiece. And, of course, the commandments break out that way. We've been focusing these last few weeks on the second half, the obligations, the duties, the responsibilities we owe to other people. And so in your handout, you'll notice that we've listed six through nine, and then, of course, number 10. I'm going to read through them very quickly. Uh, Notice that there is a difference between six through nine and number 10, and see if we can recognize it when we get there. He says, you must not murder. Talked about that, committing adultery. Do not steal. Do not testify falsely against your neighbor. That's bearing false witness. And then we come to verse 17. You must not covet your neighbor's house. Um, you must not covet your neighbor's wife, male or female servant. We would say your employer, employee, ox or donkey, your car, someone's car, right? Um, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. Um, the idea here, you know, covet is an interesting word. It, it actually just means to strongly desire something. So in its original meaning, it's actually kind of a neutral word. The word hemad, it, that's the Hebrew that's translated covet, is just talking about um, you know, this idea of, of strongly desiring something. But when it becomes unhealthy, when it becomes destructive, it's when that something is someone else's or outside of God's will for us. And so this is what he's talking about. And there's this um, interesting aspect to it because you'll notice the commandments leading up 6 through 9 all talk about action, don't they? But number 10, it has to do with something that may never show up directly. It has to do with the realm of thought. It's underneath the surface. Oftentimes, it's something that people may not even see. It's behind the eyes. It's stealth. It's camouflaged. Hard to pin down. Difficult to identify. No one ever may know. We may even find that when we're covered, we misdirect. We feign uh, praise to avoid detection about what our struggle is with someone else because we we feel bothered by their blessing or we want what they have or we feel diminished somehow by, by what they have and what we don't. And that tendency to envy and jealousy to allow that to corrupt our spirit, that dissatisfaction that begins to make its way into a life, it can be so harmful to us when we, when we do, don't learn how to live in contentment. And in fact, you'll notice that in the quote section there, we've placed in there a portion of what is called the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is, is an older historic piece. And the language is not necessarily something that is recognizable to us, but the content is so profound. This was a way of teaching people to understand the commandments. And look what it says here. It says, the 10th command requireth full contentment with our own condition. So it's putting an emphasis on this commandment that is calling us to a place of contentment with a right and charitable frame of spirit towards our neighbor 
and all that is his or hers. The 10th commandment forbiddeth all discontentment with our own estate. So it's going to challenge us around our tendency to be discontented and to covet what other people have. It's going to challenge us around this idea of envying or grieving of at the good of our neighbor and all the inordinate emotions and affections to anything that is his. In other words, it has to do with this idea of watching our heart in relation to, and we say, I'm not going to, I'm not going to covet, but it has to do with this idea of, of not just not wanting to see someone else hurt or diminished, but also learning how to live in, in a contented way. So it's, it's, it's envy, it's jealousy, it's um, an unhealthy, consuming desire uh, that is birthed out of a dissatisfaction that corrupts our heart and spirit. And so, you know, we look at this and we're aware of it. Um, I was reminded also, though, of something else, that one of the most um, important aspects of this has to do with what the Scripture teaches us um, about how this can affect us. And there were two examples that really stood out to me, and I'm gonna, actually, there's a, there's a lot of different things I want to say about it, but, but there were two passages. One was from the new and one was from the old. One had to do with a positive example of how to walk through someone else's blessing, and another had a negative connotation of, of what it can do when we let something get out of control inside of our heart. So the first one, the one that I would like to refer to is, is, is as a positive example, is from the New Testament, and it has to do with John the Baptist. John the Baptist, is, he's often called, um, it was called the Baptist. His name was John. He was called the Baptist because he baptized people in anticipation of the coming Messiah. And he was known for baptizing people under repentance in water. And he had a huge following at the time right before Jesus. He called himself the one who was preparing the way for the coming of the Savior. And John was this charismatic, dynamic figure. He was a prophetic voice, and many, many people followed him. He had a, in fact, at the time of, of Christ's coming, John had acquired a significant allegiance on the part of, of many disciples. And in fact, some of the disciples that end up following Jesus first were disciples of John. So John it has, comes, though, to this very interesting place in his ministry where in the, at his height of ministry, uh, he has this situation occur where Jesus appears on the scene and even though John is not necessarily fully convinced, he because later on he's going to ask Jesus to just to double check when he's in prison, are you the one? Because there were some things coming back, and, and John wasn't quite sure. But at the same time, in that moment, he said, this is the one. And when he says it, it says that all of a sudden people started turning from following John, and they started turning to following Jesus. And there's this very revealing moment that occurs in John 3 where the disciples of John come to him and they say this, and we'll put this up. They say, it says, John's disciples came to him and they said, Rabbi, they said, Rabbi, the, the, the man that you met on the other side of the Jordan River, the one that you identified as the Messiah, he, he's also baptizing people. And notice this, and everybody is going to him instead of coming to us. And they say that because they're bothered by it. Do you realize what's happening? We're no longer, they're no longer coming and is this really what you wanted? Is this really what you wanted? I mean, do you understand what's going on here? They're, they're leaving us. What are you going to do about it? Look what John says. This is in your handout. John, this is how he answers that. And it's a really, because again, it's such a human thing. I mean, his disciples are worried, right? They're disturbed because they saw their cause waning as Jesus' ministry is rising. And it was appeal, an appeal that was born out of competition. It was born out of a spirit of fear. What, you know, what we often talk about as the, a scarcity mentality in contrast to an abundance mentality, right? That, that classic, the seven habits. 
highly effective people. The idea that there's only so much blessing to go around, so your blessing, if you get blessed, then that's less blessing for me. In contrast to an abundance, which tends to say, hey, you know what? We can all share the blessing. This is a win-win time, right? But sometimes we clutch when we're afraid. We're afraid that if you get it, I lose. So I got to hold on tight. And, and that does damage, that damages us. So this is what John is being sort of, they're telling him, look, you can't do this. If you do this, you're going to lose out. Look what John says. It says that John replies to them, hey, listen, listen, no one can receive anything unless God gives it to him from heaven. You yourselves know how plainly, I told you this, I told you ahead of time. I am not the Messiah. I am only here to prepare the way for him. Look at this. It, you know, it, and then he uses this great picture, an analogy of what it means to step aside. He says, look, it is the bridegroom who marries the bride and the best man. He, he's simply glad to just stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, look, I, 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 am, I am filled with joy at his success. I, he, he must become greater and greater, and I must, be, must become less and less. The older version says he must increase and I must decrease. This is a beautiful moment where John really does model for us what it means. I mean, he's able to, to, to respond in a way that, that demonstrates the absence of envy, the humility of spirit, the ability to move off center stage, to bow out gracefully, um, even though he was clearly a man of, of a fiercely competitive nature. But that he, he, he reminds himself, I'm the bridegroom. I'm not the bridegroom. I'm just the best man watching the bridegroom. My job is to, is to enjoy the blessing of the other. That's what I'm to do. I'm going to get out of the way. You know, he, he, he was able to survive where many people have failed. He did not allow his success to fill him with this kind of pride because when it was his time to yield to the one whose shoes he would later say, I'm not worthy to unlatch his sandals. Um, he did so with little fanfare, even though we know he was, again, someone who was filled with an intense kind of ambitious prophetic spirit. It takes a graciousness to pull back and let someone else have the blessing. There are times where God is going to ask us to do that. To say, you take, you take the blessing. Or, you know what? I rejoice in your blessing. Even though I want it. I bless you. And sometimes one of the hardest things to do is when we, we want something that someone else has. Is, or has been waiting for. We've both been waiting. And they get it. And it's like, that's sometimes hard, really hard to genuinely rejoice and not feel like I just wish I could pull them back down with me. I was thinking of an example of that. It's the other piece. It's also in the handout on the parallel side. It goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, very early in the Bible. The first recorded murder in human history. We're talking about two brothers of all irony. The Bible says that Cain and Abel were brothers. God asked them to give a sacrifice. The sacrifice that seems to have been required was a sacrifice of a lamb. The lamb was to anticipate the coming of the ultimate lamb, God's own son. As John would later call him, the lamb of the world who takes away the sin, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of this world. But it says that, that Cain was a worker of the ground. He was a farmer. Abel was a shepherd. And it, Cain and Abel both offered up their offerings unto God, even though God is specific about what he required. And it says that Abel's offering was received, but Cain's was rejected. Look at this in verse 5. But he did not respect, or that he did not, he did not receive Cain and his offering. And Cain became angry, verse 5, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said to him, Cain, why are you so angry? Why has your countenance fallen? Listen, 
if you would do what is right, if you do well, look, look will, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do this, if you allow anger to just play itself out in you, and you, you hold your position of resentment in your stubbornness, do you understand sin is lying at the door? The original language almost implies like a lion waiting to pounce upon you. It will have you. He says, and his desire is for you, but you, you should overcome it. You should rule over it. But then look what we're told happens in verse 8. It says that now Cain talked with Abel, his brother. He couldn't help it. And it came to pass that in, in that moment his anger overrules him. And when they were in the field, it says Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and he killed him. And by the way, brothers have been killing each other ever since. Cain envied Abel's blessing. And at some point, he ceased to see Abel as his brother, and he saw him as a rival. You know, we're all susceptible to this. Um, there's this great film. It won an Academy Award Best Picture way back, and I can hardly believe this, in 1984, because um, I saw it, you know? Uh, <laughs> I mean, in fact, my wife and I were talking about it. It was the year we were married. We saw it together. And that film is just this great film. And the reason I'm referring to Amadeus is because there is perhaps few stories that can compete with how this illustrates exactly what I'm talking about. If some of us may recall, you may have seen it. If you haven't seen it, you, you got a treat coming, all right? Because it's about Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart and a man named Salieri. Salieri is this amazingly gifted, renowned composer. He's a by-the-book guy. He's, he's an expert in his field. He's respected, highly regarded. He's good. He's maxed out his abilities. But he comes across this other guy who is a reckless, undisciplined genius, Mozart. And it kills him because he's so gifted. And here is this one who does everything you're supposed to. He's achieved success. And this undisciplined, reckless, but extraordinarily gifted genius does things that he goes, I can never do. And instead of being contented with his own blessing, the entire film is set up around this idea that he keeps, he's so consumed with, with Mozart's gift that he loses all perspective. He just gets consumed and ruined by it. It's fascinating. It's a fascinating story. You know, I, I once heard of a Greek fable in which we were told of a, of a, of a covetous man to whom the, the gods granted um, any wish he liked on the condition that his neighbor would get twice as much of it. <laughs> Unable to bear the thought of his neighbor coming out ahead of him, better off than him. He wished to lose one eye. Now, in the other service, they went, oh. So, <laughs> no, one, one, no, right? He's blind. Yeah, and, you know, the idea was that we can get so consumed with someone else's blessing that we would rather lose, we, we were, to, have, to have them blind, we'd rather lose one eye to do it. This idea that it, it, so we'd say things like, I wish they were dead. I wish they were dead. They made me sick. They don't deserve that. See, that's the same spirit, same root. 
You know, I go back to that Salieri um, moment with Mozart. And there's this one quote. He's talking to God because he's so mad. He says, from now on, we're enemies, you and me. Because you choose for an instrument a boastful, lustful, infantile boy and give me for reward only the ability to recognize that incarnation. Because you are unjust, you are unfair, you are unkind. I will block you, I swear it. I will hinder and harm your creature on earth as far as I am able. I am, he was, it's an example of someone who's so totally consumed with debris. I gotta, I gotta bring him down. In fact, the film is all about him plotting, plotting methodically how I'm gonna take him down, this, this, this guy. This genius who I resent so deeply. The irony, and we'll talk about this in a moment, but I'm gonna, I mean, okay, let me do this. I'm gonna put a couple things on the board, just practical thoughts for this week, all right? That have to do with this idea of managing anything in us that looks like covetousness and increasing our ability to be content. Let me start out by suggesting number one, and I like to do this, it's a way of putting a handle on things. I wanna suggest that we, one way we can do this is by number one, resisting the urge to compare. Because the Bible reminds us that we're not to compare ourselves with other people. That comparison is unwise, and very little good can come from it. In 2 Corinthians, we're told in the 10th chapter that comparison is unwise. You know, if we compare ourselves amongst ourselves, we're not a wise person. There's no good that can come from it. Why is that? You usually, because usually what happens is one of two things. We get into the comparison game. We all of a sudden, we either run the risk of starting to feel proud and arrogant and better than other people because I stack up better, or we start to feel worse, ashamed. Somehow I don't, and I'm not that good. And so our identity begins to become dependent upon not what God says we are and who we are and how we're loved by him, not about being a growing person to honor him. It becomes about how we stack up, how we measure up. Are we better? Are we worse? What do they have? What do I not have? What do they achieve? What do they have? How do they look? What do I look like? All that stuff. Bible says godliness with contentment is a tremendous gain. In other words, it's not wise to compare ourselves. It doesn't do good. I mean, to assess ourselves, you know, and again, I go back to the, just bear with me on this one, I go back to the whole Salieri-Mozart moment. This, this, is, this is Salieri, hearing the music of Amadeus to illustrate this point. I heard the music of true forgiveness filling a theater, conferring on all who sat there perfect absolution. Ah, God was singing through this little man to all the world, unstoppable, making my defeat more bitter with every passing note. He goes on and he says this to the priest, I will speak for you, Father. I speak for all mediocrities in the world. I am their champion. I am their patron saint. All I ever wanted was to sing to God. He gave, he gave me that longing. And then he made me mute. Why? Tell me that. If he didn't want me to praise him with my music, why implant the desire? Like a lust in my body, and then deny me the talent. And you know what the irony, of course, was? He was enormously gifted, and he was tremendously successful, and he had achieved great notoriety. But he was so consumed with what he didn't have that none of that meant anything. It was ruined, corrupted, diminished, to the point where he says, I'm just a mediocrity compared to him. And he doesn't deserve that gift. It's your fault, God. You, get, you made him with that gift. I should have had it. I would appreciate it. See, that's the, that's the stuff. Gets going inside of us. And that leads to the second thought here, which is this. This is going to sound simple, but look. Focus more on what we have been given rather than on what we don't have. Right? 
Uh, you know what I'm talking about here is, is this need to practice contentment. Practice it. Focus on our blessings rather than on their blessing. You know, I was thinking about the greatest, I think it's the greatest story Jesus ever told. The parable, some of us know it, of the lost boy. We know it by another name. The father had two sons, Jesus said. One of them came to him and said, I'm tired of living with you guys. This is boring me. It's killing me. I got I got out of here. I need my money. I know I don't deserve to get, I know I'm not entitled to get my inheritance till you're dead, but if you could, I would love for you to cash me out now and let me go. <laughs> to which the father said, all right, if that's what you want. And he gave him the money, and Jesus said the boy took the money. With a smile on his face, he waved goodbye and went to a far country. And there he lived it up, spending, spending with great enthusiasm, living riotously, it says, until he had nothing left. The economy turns, famine hits, he has nothing. All the people who were hanging with him, they're gone. And then Jesus tells them something else happens, which for a Jewish audience was a huge indignity. He says it got so bad that the younger son, this runaway son, this prodigal, that he finally had to get a job, and the only job he could get was working on a pig farm. And it got so bad, and Jesus says, but that wasn't the worst of it. Because it got so bad on that pig farm, he started to envy the pigs. Because he says, they eat better than I do. I feed them, and I get what's left. It says that he was down to nothing. And he finally, it says he had a moment. And some of us have had this moment. He came to himself, and he thought to myself, what am I doing? I, I, I'm going to go back home. I'm going to go back home. And I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say to my father, I'm going to say to my father that I, I, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I, I, I've sinned against you, and I've sinned against heaven. I, uh, all I want to know is can I have a job? I'll be, your, I'll be a hired servant. He'll hire me. I'll go home. And he does. What he doesn't know, and Jesus is trying to show people what God's heart is like. He's trying to remind them of why God cares about lost and hurting and broken people. And he says to them, he says that the father was on the road and, and he's waiting. Every day he would go out to see, what's the day that my son's coming home? And it says that finally he, he was looking down the road and he sees a figure and he, he knew it was him. And, 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 and he sees him and he's in his rags and he's skinny and he, he, he's a broken version of what once was, but he's, he's limping home. And it says that, God, just like Jesus says, you want to know what God's like? He says, the father says, he doesn't, he takes off running. He pulls up his, oh, he starts running out, out to his son and he gets to him and he falls on him, Jesus says, and he throws his arms around him and he starts to kiss him. And he says, my son, and he says, bring out the ring, bring out the robe. My son who was dead, he's alive. And the son starts to try to say, oh, father, I've sinned, I, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven. I, I'm not worthy to be called. Bring out the robe, bring out the ring. We're gonna have a feast. My son who was dead has come home. He's alive. And we're going to celebrate, bring out the fatted calf, the special one. Get that one. That's the one, the one we've been saving. We're going to, this is, this is it. And then Jesus could have ended the story right there, which would have been a great story. Perfect. But he does one more thing. He says, but you know, his brother, 
was out in the field, been very faithful, working hard. His brother hears about his younger brother, the prodigal coming on, the one who cashed out, took the family money. They're throwing a feast for your brother. You got to hurry up and get home. I'm not going in there. That's the last place I'm going. Why? He's your brother. He's alive. It's a miracle. I don't care. And the word gets back to the father. He's not coming. The father goes out to the older brother and he says, son, what's, what are you doing? Your brother. He goes, look, he goes, you, look, your, our, your son takes the money, goes off, wastes it all, wastes all of our money. Now he comes home and you're throwing a party for him. I've been here faithful, honoring you, serving you, doing my duty for you. You never threw me a party like that. I'm not going in. Father says, you, you need to look at yourself because honestly in your heart, where is your compassion? Your brother was dead. He's alive. Should it not be that we honor that moment? Smallness of heart. You know what? He, Jesus leaves it dangling. Almost like he's saying, where are we? Because there are places where we get to decide, are we going to have a smallness of heart or a largeness of heart? You know what I'm saying? We get to decide... You know, okay, yeah, I get it. He wasted it. Yeah, I get it. He blew it. Yeah, but you know what? He's home. He's alive. I'm going to love him. That's, that's what God does. I'm going to have a big heart, but that smallness of heart, it's like a, just a lot of times, you know, it's, it's like we, we, we get so consumed. We, we compare, and we start to get offended over what they're getting and what I deserve. That's the whole point here. You know, I was reminded that one of the great mistakes in life is to focus more on what we want than on what we have. And in fact, I, I, this is, and this is the last quote I'll refer to. It's in the handout. It says this it's from Richard Carlson. It's actually quite a practical statement. He says this. He says, he says, it doesn't seem to make any difference how much we have. It's on the bottom of the quote section. We just keep expanding our list of desires, which guarantees we will remain dissatisfied. The mindset that says, you know, I'll be happy when this desire is fulfilled, it's the same mindset that will repeat itself once that desire is met. I'll be happy then. But when then comes, you know, I'll be happy then. The point is, it's about, it's about learning to, get, to, be, to have contentment in our heart. And I'll tell you what contentment is connected to. And it's the last thing we'll talk about here. And it's the perfect thing to talk about here in light of where we're heading. And that is this. It's, it has to do with choosing to, to be a thankful person. And it's a choice we make. And one of the ways we get to, to do this is to positively confess thanksgiving to God. As the old prayer that I love to quote around thanksgiving for all for all your blessings, right? Remembered and forgotten. For all your blessings, known and unknown, I give you thanks. For all your blessings, known and unknown, remembered and forgotten, we give you thanks. The, the blessings that I know about, that I can recognize in my life, but the blessings I'll never know about, but they're going on, and they're gifts from your hand. I thank you for them, Lord. I thank you for the recognizable gifts. I thank you for the unrecognizable gifts. I thank you for the gifts, Lord, that I can remember now, even now vividly, as the years have passed. I can remember, and I say thank you. I thank you, Lord, for the gifts, that I, the blessings I have forgotten as the years have gone. I give you thanks for them all. Blessings known and unknown, remembered and forgotten. You know, just this complaining and articulating our dissatisfaction with something undermines our contentment. So does affirming our blessings and gratitude increase our satisfaction. Speak thankfulness to God. Let us enter his, into his gates with thanksgiving. Let us cultivate thankfulness in our hearts. You know, to me, this week is one of the best weeks of the year. Think about it. I mean, what a great place to live. We, we live in a place where we get to have a day, a holiday, 
a holy day of sorts to just say thank you. And I think about that. Be thankful. And I, I have to believe that as we move towards this week, there's a great opportunity. Do you see the opportunity before us right now? We get to decide how we want to enter this week. And maybe this week we need to decide that, you know what, Lord, help me this week because I'm going to really try to honor you this week. I'm going to have... I'm going to ask you to fill me with gratitude. I want to focus on my blessings. I'm going to, anytime that temptation comes to have a critical spirit, start complaining, start envying, being resentful, start focusing on what they have, what I don't, their blessing, my law. Lord, give me a right spirit. Help me to have a graciousness, not a scarcity. Help me, Lord, to be a blesser. You know, choose to have an attitude of gratitude for all the astonishing gifts, loved ones that are all around us. Um, and most of those gifts, the best of them are free, simple and small and beautiful, but we're in a hurry. You know, to the thankful, little can be a feast. A drop of rain on my face, a ray of light breaking through, mm, the warmth of the sun, a gentle breeze, things that are free, the smile of a friend across the table that I'm appreciating for this moment. You have been my friend, the kiss of my wife, a faithful companion. These gifts, the gifts that if we were to lose them, we would be so much more the poorer. And some of us would long for a day to have one moment back. And we take them for granted. Like casual things, Jesus said, Live as one who sees. Consider the lilies of the field and how they are arrayed. I tell you, he says, they are more beautiful in their simplicity than Solomon in all of his glory. We need to do that every now and then. I thank you, Lord, for that tender embrace. I thank you, Lord, for that hearty laugh that we just shared. I thank you, Lord, for this gift of coffee or tea on this cold, beautiful morning with this crisp air, how good it is to be alive. Listen to me, lastly. Thanksgiving morning, what we're going to do, we're going to honor thankful. Look, what are we saying? What are we saying? We're saying, Lord, I thank you for the cross. I thank you for a love that never quit, that went all the way. It broke, you broke yourself for me. I cannot repay you. How can I pay you for that love? I give you the one thing. I give you me. I give you me with all of my inconsistency. I give you me. I want to honor you in this life and be a blessing to others in your name. Help me. I, I, I thank you for the cross. I, I thank you for your presence that walks with me through the everydayness of my life, through the ups and the downs. Lo, Jesus said, I'm with you always, even in the ends of the world. I thank you, Lord, not only for your presence, but for a promise that reaches beyond this life into the next. It extends into eternity. Lord, I thank you for that promise of a life beyond this life that is anchored in you and in your living reality that now I celebrate. I thank you, Lord, for the very breath in my being that allows me to speak out your name. I thank you that you know me by name. I thank you for everything. I thank you for my life, my health. I thank you for such a great salvation. Lord, I am thankful. And I know not all is right in this world. And I know there are broken things and messed up things and there's a lot of evil. Yes, and there's a lot of injustice. And there is a time to honor that and mourn, but there's also a time to be thankful. And I think this is one of those weeks where we get to really do it. Let me pray. Lord, I want to ask you to just be with us. And I, I know, Lord, that you, you do care about what we believe. I get that. I know that's true. I know it matters. 
What we believe about you matters. But you also care deeply about how we live and how we love and how we honor you, Lord, in our lives. And so I just pray that we would accept the invitation of this week. I pray that we would cultivate a thankful heart. I pray that we would refuse to allow ourselves to get bogged down in envy and jealousy and discontentment and and instead choose to be a people who embrace the small and the amazing gifts that you've placed all around us, Lord. And so as we close this service out, as our closing song reminds us to have a heart of gratitude, not of grief, that you would bless also our time of giving. We would honor you as well. We ask this together. In Jesus' name, amen.